Is this on now? This, okay. You're probably going to be sorry, but we'll go through anyway. I got a call yesterday at 4.30 in the afternoon, Pastor Grinder mentioning the circumstances in their family and asked if I would fill in today. So obviously I've not had a lot of time to prepare. Uh, normally I like to spend time to prepare, so it's going to be a little loosey-goosey this morning, but I've come to know that you're pretty patient about those things, so uh, just work with me if you would this morning. Find 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Initially, I'm going to read the last two verses of chapter 11, and let me explain uh, while you're finding it why we're going uh, through this particular text. Uh, I think it was September, I closed out a, an adult Sunday school uh, we had done a little bit on church history, for those of you who uh, don't participate in that. We'd done a little bit on church history, and we'd kind of watched this idea of sanctification as a theological theme. We'd kind of watched it through the centuries. And as we came to the end of this class that, that we were um, conducting, uh, I, I ended with the Pentecostal movement of the early 1900s. And so in doing so, uh, we turned to 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14 just to kind of observe some of the comments that Paul was making to the church in Corinth. And since that time, I have found myself thinking more and more about 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and just personally trying to understand a little bit more about why those letters were written and how they were written and when they were written and what was the point and so on and so forth. So my mind has kind of been floating in these uh, uh, passages anyway over the last several weeks. And then I also thought that next Sunday is going to be the first Sunday in December, and, and it is our tradition on the first Sunday of the month to observe the Lord's table. So I thought that was a good segue to go ahead and come back and visit this uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 passage in light of the fact that I've been kind of as I was referred to in the first hour, I was kind of, a, as a cow, I, I've been ruminating, you know, chewing the cud, so to speak, on uh, 1 Corinthians. So I thought it was good to take advantage of some of that, and then in light of the fact that uh, next Sunday is the Lord's table. So I thought this all made sense. So that's kind of where, uh, uh, where I'm going to be this morning. We're going to talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, as a unit. So let me read the last two verses, and then we'll pray. <clears throat> Excuse me, then we'll pray. And then I want to take a few minutes and kind of paint a backdrop, because I think some of you have gotten to know me well enough now. I like the backstory, I like the history, I like the circumstances and all that. So I want to take a little bit, and then we'll come back and we'll start at chapter 11, verse 17. But let's just read the last two verses for the moment. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Our Father, we're asking that you open our hearts and minds again to understand your word, This can be a difficult text, a challenging text. We don't live in the first century. 
We can't quite tell exactly what's going on here, but it's a piercing message. So may we be willing to lay our hearts and minds before you, and if it is your purpose to convict us of areas where we might be failing as the Corinthians did. So again, our request is the work of your spirit in our hearts and minds. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now up on the screen, <clears throat> right now you see a picture, and some of you can see that well, and others of you can't, and I understand that. So relying on your knowledge of Paul's first missionary journey, in chapter 13 and 14 in the book of Acts, Paul will leave with Barnabas and John Mark from the city of Antioch. They will sail out to the island of Cyprus. They will traverse the southern edge of the island. They will end up in the city of Paphos. From there, they will sail up to what today we refer to as Turkey. And uh, again, if you can see that, you can kind of watch the arrows. But they land and they eventually go up into what's called Pisidian Antioch. They'll travel slightly east. They will then retrace their steps. They will come back, and they will sail back to Antioch. That's Paul's first missionary journey. We understand maybe 18 months for him to do all that traveling. And when they get back, there are some questions as to what are we going? What we? What are we Jews? What are we going to be? saying to these Gentiles who are starting to be converted now in large numbers, what are we going to say to these people about, you know, the laws of Moses and what it means to be rightly related to God and so on and so forth. And so when he gets back, they go down to Jerusalem and they have what we call the council and that's recorded for us in Acts 15. Eventually they finish Paul has a conversation with Barnabas. He says, hey, let's go back and visit those churches. And Barnabas says, hey, that's a great idea. I'll get John Mark and let's go. Paul says, whoa, wait a minute. I ain't traveling with John Mark again. And you're familiar with the conflict that happens between Paul and Barnabas. Paul says, I'm going to take Silas. Barnabas says, okay, I'll take John Mark. And they part ways. And from that point forward, Luke chronicles the travels of Paul and not the travels of Barnabas. So they then head out, and the next slide would be the second journey. And you can see in this case, um, there we go. In the next case, they travel north, and they take a landward route. And they travel through those cities that they initially contacted on the first journey, and it is Paul's intention to go north once he hits the center of this area that, again, today we call it Turkey. In that day, they referred to it as Galatia. So it was Paul's intention to go north up to Bithynia, which is up near the Black Sea. But the Bible tells us in Acts 16 that the Spirit of God stopped them from doing that. So they simply continued to travel west, and they ultimately ended up in the city of Troas, and it's there that Paul has this Macedonian vision that we've all heard preached about. And so Paul and his entourage, Silas and Timothy at this point, 
they get on a boat and they sail up and they enter a port city just south of, this, of Philippi. This is where we have the story of the Philippian jailer, Acts 16. You know, he's kicked out of town. He travels west to Thessalonica, Acts 17. He's kicked out of there. He goes to Berea. He's kicked out of there. He goes south to Athens. He leaves there and ends up south down in Corinth. Now we're in Acts 18. We know, according to Luke's account, that he spends approximately 18 months in Corinth. He then will leave, sail back to Ephesus, which is on the western coast there, referred to as Asia. He tells the people in Ephesus, I'll be back if it is the purpose of God, and he sails on and returns to Antioch. He's now completed his second missionary journey. He's excited, and Luke, in essence, from one verse, he ends the second journey, and at the next verse, he starts the third journey. So we don't know how long Paul is in Antioch, but according to Luke's account, he immediately turns around and goes back and ends up in Ephesus. At this point, we understand him to spend approximately three years in the city of Ephesus, and it's while he's in Ephesus that he has this series of exchanges with the people in Corinth. All right, so now all of a sudden we've come full circle. And, and though Paul is sitting in Ephesus and conducting his ministry in Ephesus, he is also conducting correspondence with the people in Corinth. Now, look at uh, chapter 5, verse 9, if you would. Hold your place in chapter 11. But if you go back to chapter 5, verse 9... Paul makes this comment. I have written to you in my letter. I'm going to stop right there. Because this tells us that Paul had already written at least one letter to the Corinthians. So he's already written a letter to them. And we understand if we dig a little deeper into the text that they had written to him. He then returns the letter to them. They then write back to him, and this letter that we call 1 Corinthians is now going to be his next letter to them. So these early correspondence uh, between Paul and Corinth, God did not preserve those, but he did choose to preserve this letter. And what we need to understand is there's tremendous conflict at this point in time between Paul and this church in Corinth. Now, as he sits down with their letter, and as he prepares to write to them, notice one other thing, chapter 1 and verse 11. Chapter 1 and verse 11. He says this, My brother, some from Chloe's household, have, in, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. So as Paul is sitting in Ephesus, he's had a series of correspondences with the people in Corinth. Frankly, things are not going well. He is holding in his hand an additional letter that they have sent to him, to which he's going to respond in what we call 1 Corinthians. And he also has this oral report that has come from whomever these people are, the household of Chloe. 
So as Paul's thinking about this whole situation, and as we now read 1 Corinthians, we can almost reconstruct what is going on in Corinth. Now maybe next year, Dr. John, I'd like to take a number of weeks and really dig a little deeper into this whole backdrop. But for now, let's just recognize there is tremendous conflict between Paul and this church. Just a couple comments about Corinth. Corinth was a Greek city. It had been destroyed by the Romans during their time of conquest. But Rome had recognized the strategic importance of the location of Corinth, and so Rome rebuilt the city and re-inhabited the city. But in this case, it now became thoroughly Roman. So it was a Greek location, but it was thoroughly Roman. And some of the characteristics are important to recognize that the Roman people, we today would refer to them as being highly prejudiced. That is, if you were a Roman, that is, you had the blood of a Roman pierced, or, you know, coursing through your veins, you were perceived, at least amongst other Romans, to be of a higher human stature than all these other peoples. I mean, the Romans, they were, you know, they were the cream of the crop. So there was ethnic distinction between the Romans and all other peoples. Certainly, by means of their power, they had subjugated many other nations. And so in their cultures, you had the rich, the Romans, the citizens, and you had everyone else. Today, we would simply say the rich and the poor. There may have been a slight middle class, as we think of it today, the merchants and some of the artisans and craftsmen. But for the most part, you had the rich and you had the poor, most of them slaves. Certainly, it was a patriarchal society. Much of what happened in Rome happened by means of the men of their culture. It was pretty difficult for a woman to achieve high levels of status at that point in time. Some did, but there weren't many. And then also, or lastly, I'll just mention, Rome was very pantheistic, very pluralistic. They knew they had the upper hand. They had their Caesars. They had their pantheons of gods. And they didn't necessarily stop their other peoples whom they had subjugated and who were living as slaves. They didn't necessarily stop those peoples from all their little mini-gods. And so the, the, the city was filled with religious temples, filled with religious observances of, of, of every stripe that you could imagine. So this is the flavor, if you will, of the city of Corinth that Paul had gone into, had ministered for approximately 18 months, had left, and is now writing back to. So there's a sense in which you have to understand there's very much a Roman flavor to the populace of this church in Corinth. And these are some of the issues that Paul is dealing with. So as you look at the book of a whole, the first four chapters, Paul is trying to reestablish um, the authority that he had as an apostle. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 9, notice this comment. Uh, da, 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 da. 
It's, it's verse 10. First Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 10.10. 10. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. That's a little insight as to how the Corinthians were beginning to perceive Paul as a person. Yeah, Paul, you talk a big story when you write. You know, when you're on the other side of the ocean there and you're writing us letters, you're a pretty powerful guy. But you know what? When you're with us, not so much. We're not impressed. And so the authority that should have been inherent in Paul as an apostle had been greatly diminished. And so his capacity to speak to them and to address issues with them was greatly diluted. And so that is an underlying problem in this correspondence that he's having with these people. So in what you and I call 1 Corinthians, these first four chapters, he's going to talk about his apostolic authority. In what we call chapter 5, he's going to talk to them about this immoral brother. If you look in your Bibles, there's probably some kind of a chapter heading up there that says immoral brother. Paul says, you know, I want to talk to you about, I mean, this guy has his father's wife. Paul is just scandalized that the church thinks nothing of this, that a man should have his father's wife. So he chides them in chapter 5 over their immorality. In chapter 6, he's going to talk to them about going to courts. That is, going to the secular courts that are within the city to lost people, to argue and debate. In chapter 7, he's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about widows and widowers. And he's going to talk about single people. In chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, he's going to talk about worship. He's going to start out by talking about idol worship and the idol temples and eating the meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And when we come to chapter 11, which is what we're going to be looking at here in a moment, he's going to talk to them, first of all, about head coverings with women. And then in the last half of chapter 11, he's going to talk to them about the Lord's table, which is where we're going to be in just a moment. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, he's going to reprove them for their view of gifts. Chapter 15, he's going to talk about the importance of the body, which they were brushing away. And then in chapter 16, he's going to talk to them about offerings. So this is actually quite an extensive letter in which he's trying to reestablish his authority and then address any number of different issues. And in every case, he is rebuking them. He is reproving them. He is, in some cases, extremely sarcastic, trying to get a hold of these people. And in many cases, they are dismissing what he's saying. So you've got to understand the dynamic of what's going on before we now come to this text that we're going to be looking at. So join me in chapter 11 and verse 17. I'm going to read, I'm going to start reading at uh, verse 17 of chapter 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, 
And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. The next several verses are those that are commonly spoken when a church observes the Lord's table. I want to move past those for a moment. So join me at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. Think Ananias and Sapphira. Verse 31, But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers... When you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. So I hope you sense how stern he is at this point, and I hope you recognize how disappointed he is in these people, and I hope you can read between the lines and understand how perverted they are conducting themselves during the time that's supposed to be the Lord's table. So from these portions of Scripture, I just want to mention three things. I want to revisit the rebuke, verses 17 to 22, the warning, verses 27 to 32, and then his final counsel, verses 33 and 34. And then we'll let you go. So first of all, the rebuke. Notice what he says in, back in verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Your meetings are doing more harm than good. Can you imagine that? The people of God are coming out of the various areas, gathering in homes, and ultimately he says, what you're doing is worse than if you didn't meet at all. Wow. That's pretty powerful. I mean, it's not like they weren't meeting, right? We all know Hebrews chapter 10, what is it, verse 25, you know, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. Well, they weren't doing that. They were gathering together, and as a matter of fact, they were even gathering together and observing these ordinances, 
We call it the Lord's table. So they were doing what they were supposed to be doing, were they not? And yet in doing what they were supposed to be doing, Paul's ultimate conclusion is, it's worse than if you weren't meeting at all. Well, what was so bad that he would say that? Let's look at verses 18 and following again. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. Now, you and I would probably connect a little bit better with the word distinctions among you. Now, again, envision first century Roman culture in this city of Corinth. You've got the Romans who have Roman blood coursing through their veins. And then you have the other people. You've got the rich. And then you've got those of the slave class. You've got the prominent males of their culture and the subordinate females. You've got those who are free. You've got those who are slaves. All these cultural and societal and socioeconomic distinctions that exist within this culture, they are, in essence, putting them on display when they meet together. Now, you and I know our Bibles well enough to know that whether it's here in the Corinthian letters or in other writings of the New Testament, is it not true that there is to be no Jew and Gentile? There is to be no slave and free. There is to be no male and female. There is to be no rich and poor. There are to be no ethnic distinctions. It is all to be smudged out because we are all one in Christ, correct? We'll often phrase it this way. All the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Is that what they were displaying? Not at all. Now, I have a couple slides here. I don't know how well you can see this. This is a little model, kind of a cutaway model, of what a first century Roman home may have looked like. And that, that, that lower portion there is cut away but, uh, and you'll maybe see it a little bit better in the next uh, pictures. But typically in a Roman home of this time, as you walked into an entryway, there was a large open area. And there were maybe fountains and statues and topiary and whatever else was going on. And then the house itself was conducted in somewhat of a U-shape with rooms that were dedicated to various purposes. So as you would enter into the home of these individuals, first you would see this very beautiful and gorgeous and opulent area open to space. And then around you would be various rooms. Some of them were bed uh, rooms. Some of them were chambers for the slaves and servants. Some of them were cooking areas. Some of them were sleeping areas. But they all had very designated areas. But as an early church, they didn't have buildings. They met in homes. And in some cases, they met in homes like this. So you would walk in, and yeah, maybe it's best to move on to the next picture. Here's an example. Can you imagine walking into a place like this? This is first century now. The, the gorgeous homes. I mean, absolutely gorgeous homes. Even today, 
by modern standards. We look at this and go, wow. I mean, I'd be impressed if I walked into that, even today. These were amazing structures. And these people, the Romans, the citizens now, the people of great wealth, they had beautiful homes. And this is where the believers were meeting. They were meeting in homes. If you were of the slave class, you didn't have a home. You didn't have a place where you could meet. You would meet in the homes of those who were wealthy. I have one more picture. And again, this is a, an artist's construction. But imagine walking into something that opulent. Marble floors, big pillars, fountains, just gorgeous uh, frescoes on the walls. Servants walking around, uh, taking care of the, the owners of the home. And it's in this environment that here, maybe you've been uh, brought to Christ and you're a slave or you're in some sense a subordinate within the city. And yet, by means of the kindness of the patron of this home, you're, you're allowed to come and participate in the Lord's table. But was the church in Corinth manifesting a oneness in Christ? Were they kind of smudging away the distinctions between the rich and the poor and the male and the female and the free and the slave? Not at all. If anything, they were cementing those distinctions. And so in the way that they were conducting themselves, Paul says, and notice verse 20, when you come together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. You folks may be having a meal, but I guarantee you this is not the Lord's Supper. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk, satiated. Man, they're dining on sumptuous foods while others aren't eating. The rich are just continuing to live their rich lifestyle. The poor are continuing to live their poor lifestyle. And yet they're supposed to be having communion. They're supposed to be an expression of the commonality that they are in Christ. And that is not what's going on. Verse 22, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church? Ooh, now he's really getting to it. You're despising the church. Now, it's not so much the church in the sense of the people, though it certainly included that. But they were despising the concept of the oneness that we have in Christ. They were despising those distinctions which were to be being erased and eradicated as they became new people in Christ and as they formed a new body in the city of Corinth. They weren't doing that, were they? So he says, shall I praise you for this? No. He then cites that those words, again, which we often read during the observance of the Lord's table. And then in verse 27, we move on to what I would call the warning. First, we looked at the rebuke. Now we'll look at the warning. So beginning at verse 27, he says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. What was the unworthy manner? 
that he's talking about. Now, I'll be frank. I find in many churches, and my wife and I have gone to a lot of churches over the last 30 years, but I have find it ve- found it very common that when a ministry, and, and any number that we've attended over the years, when a ministry is to participate and observe the Lord's table, often this text is read in such a way that the question is posed to everyone, have, are, are you about to eat in an unworthy fashion? And the emphasis seems to be, you need to become deeply introspective at this moment. You need to figure out if there's any sin in your life. And if so, you need to confess that sin before you partake of the Lord's table. Well, that's probably true. I'm not denying that that's true. But is that the point of this text? Again, When we talk about our Bible, there's one interpretation, and yes, there are many applications. But what was the point of this rebuke? In what way were these people eating in an unworthy manner? They were living in their social distinctions. They were living in their ethnic distinctions. They were living in their monetary distinctions. They were living in their class distinctions. And they were cementing them by the very way they were conducting themselves when they gathered together as a body. And Paul says this utter despising of the work of Christ, which is supposed to manifest the oneness that we are in Christ, you are in a way bringing judgment on yourself, some of you even to the point of death. Wow, this is pretty powerful, is it not? So again in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread Drinks of the cup, notice verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body. Now I'm going to suggest to you, it's talking about the local body. Not the body on the cross or not, not, none of that. The body. You know, to the degree that you and I don't get along, or to the degree that a church has within it different cliques or different segments or different family units. You know, I mean, fortunately, I don't know you folk well enough to know of any historical issues that may exist. But frankly, there might be some here who sit on one side because that family sits on the other side. You know what I'm saying? I don't know any of that. So I have no one in my mind as I'm saying this. But you know what? The human heart is such that it's probably true in most congregations. Oh, someone said something at some point in time. He said that three years ago. She did that five years ago. And so we sit on opposite sides. Oh, yeah, we're still there. And when we have communion, I make sure I'm not partaking in an unworthy manner. Really? Have you gone to one another and squared that away? 
Are you manifesting the fact that you're one in Christ? Really? Are you? Or do you kind of just push that aside? Because after all, the Lord's Supper is an individual thing. It's between me and the Lord. It's, it's me individually worshiping God at this moment. Really? Is that what that's supposed to represent? Is that what the Lord's table represents? Your individual salvation? Or is it more a picture of the unity that we have in the body? That now there is no rich and poor, slave and free, and white and black, and whatever other distinctions we've created as human creatures, fallen as we are. Because Paul said it's gotten to the point with you people that God is starting to kill some of you. Wow. It's pretty powerful stuff. So he says in verse 30, That is why many among you are weak and sick, a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judge ourselves... If we will look within our own hearts and ask ourselves, am I rightly related to everyone in this body? Or am I continuing to look down my nose at so-and-so or such-and-such? Paul says, then you better judge yourself and get that right. Or you will come under judgment yourself. So he then concludes with his simple counsel. Again, the last two verses where we started this morning. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. Now, this is where we historically get this idea of we all pass out the elements, we all eat at one time, or we all drink at one time. This is where this is rooted. But do you really think he's emphasizing here the chronology is it really the chronology that is emphasizing when he tells them to wait for one another? I don't think it's the chronology. There was something going on that when they as a body were meeting together and when they were electing to observe the Lord's table, Paul was admonishing them to express the oneness that was supposed to be there and put away those distinctions. Wait for one another. Respect one another. Honor one another. Because you are a new creature in Christ. And because you're a new creature in Christ, there ought to be a new family where all those distinctions are gone. And so he says, and when I come, I'll give further directions. This is a powerful text. And so on a monthly basis, as Cardwell Community Church continues to observe the Lord's table on a monthly basis, should we do personal introspection? Of course. But from this point on, I hope all of us are a little more mindful of the context in which this charge is written. And we need to ask ourselves, what is my relationship to my brothers and sisters in Christ here? Am I har harboring animosity? 
do I, am I at issue with someone here? And it's made an iceberg between us. I trust that's not the case. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And again, we can't necessarily walk the streets of Corinth in the first century. I think there's a lot going on in this church that it's, it's hard for us to discern. But as we step back from the text, I think we can recognize there are issues here that existed in the first century, and let's be frank, they can exist today. We can harbor prejudices, we can harbor perspectives, we can continue to smile while we know in our hearts there's issues between us and others. So we simply lay our hearts before you and say, God, convict me of my sin, of your righteousness, and of the coming judgment. In Jesus' name we have asked. Amen. Thank you.